You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1982 cult classic, The House on Sorority Row. A sploosh. Is that someone taking a cannonball dive into a filthy pool, or is that a head in a toilet, Wes? Head in a toilet would be a good sound effect, but that would seem to be more of a belabored flushing, and I don't think I could foley that out that wouldn't make it audio poison yes exactly I mean you can't have things being flushed in film in the 50s you can't have the sound of being flushing things in dead air in the aughts or the 20s we are in the 20s it feels so weird to say it like that the roaring 20s Wes I like this film how it mixes at the beginning I felt like I was seeing a lot of different things going on at the very beginning not just the uh blue and black sequence at the beginning but uh meeting some of these sorority girls and their one mother and the house mother i felt like i was stuck in the 50s and the 80s very firmly and like there was very little mention if none at all of the 60s and 70s it's like those decades didn't exist like they were plucked right out of the set dressing plucked right out of the music choices plucked right out of the wardrobe it's like none of these things really existed no one really talked too too much about the freaky hippies or free love it was like a very chaste very 50s minded film and i really enjoyed that aspect of this yeah there is a a a pre-credit sequence that takes place on June 19th, 1961. So that's still early enough in the 60s that there's still a lot of bleed over from the 1950s. People haven't exactly given in to flower power just yet. But this is an early slasher from the golden era of slashers, something that I've been talking about a lot lately because, well, we just seem to be living in slashers from this era for a little time. Although this is an interesting point in the transition of slashers. There's when you look at things from the horror genre, you can in terms of slashers, that particular subgenre, you can think of things as proto slashers, you know, like Alice, Sweet Alice, Bay of Blood, Savage Weekend, these types of things that happen before Halloween, Black Christmas, of course. And then you have things that happen, you know, 1978 to around 1980, 1982. And you're like, okay, they're slashers. They're all the same. They're not Lydia. They're absolutely not. And the more you, the more slashers you see, the more slashers you uh, can recognize patterns in. And the house on sorority row is consequence of some seismic changes in how horror movies were presented to the general public. I saw some of the 
press that came out around its release. And it was it, it did well, but it had a lot of negative press in that people didn't know what to expect. There were people who were very relieved that it was sort of a soft core slasher film in that the kills were not overly bloody and that people weren't overly sexy and that it wasn't painful to watch. As one reviewer had said, all of our music and movies at the time were painful and they inflicted pain on the on the consumer uh, and it was devoid of that, which was good in their eyes. But then there were so many other people <laughs> saying that this was mediocre and it didn't have the scares and it didn't have the kills and it didn't have the, the, the scantily clad women, which were featured so prominently on the cover, much to the chagrin of the director and writer. So I think that it it had sort of like a the old switcheroo. Mm. It had a lot of, it didn't deliver on the promise of the premise. You wanted a slasher film and you got one, but you also got more of like a drama. I expected to see this in the Kayla Jensei book, House of Psychotic Women, because the lead girl, Catherine, is like absolutely out of her mind at times. And I think that I didn't expect that. You don't expect that so much from your slasher or so much from your final girl type girls because any one of these girls could have made a great final girl, really, honestly. So I think that's part of the fun in hindsight of this film. But I expected more slasher convention out of this film. I think what you're picking up on is a couple of things which you're right first and foremost that when you watch this film you're going to be sitting for a while wondering where's the slasher you've got a lot of adventures in babysitting or don't tell mom the babysitter's dead you got a lot of those vibes where you are trying to follow these young women who have committed a crime and it's 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 almost um, in the same sense where you have uh, watched I Know What You Did Last Summer and you watched a bunch of people commit a crime. Although this is way less of an excusable accident that if you just came forward, well, you know, we'll figure it out. But this is like way more heinous and we'll get into what makes it so heinous when we get to that particular scene. When slashers hit it big, and I think some of the dirge that you're getting from these critics is by 1982, they're already kind of tired of it. When you're a critic, you are supposed to sit down and you watch a lot of films. If you're not the type of person who likes slasher movies or horror movies, and many critics who view themselves in a certain light don't, you are forced to sit through a lot of the same type of film and so by the time this film came out, people were, again, another one of these, but this doesn't even have the, the sleaze. Where's the sleaze? That's basically what they're asking for. They want a body count. They want tits. They want things of that nature. There is some nudity in this. So if you guys want some nudity, you get some. It's very it's very tame, but there is some. It's sponsored in part by the Itty Bitty Titty Committee and Side Boob Cornucopia. <laughs> Jesus 
fucking Christ. Um, Proto Slashers had one criticism when the slasher boom was in full swing. There's not enough bodies. Then you can see that films many times would go back and add additional scenes. The Final Terror is a great example of this. How can we up the body count? We need more characters. And that's how come if you ever see a slasher and all of a sudden like some rando couple at the beginning of a movie gets killed or some random hitchhiker halfway through the movie shows up just to get killed, you know that those are additional scenes to up the body count. Then people were getting, it's like you need more death, you need more death. And so we get to the realm of when the horror sequel started coming out. Halloween 2, Friday the 13th Part 2, a massive backlash from censors that they let squeak through the door because there was a lot of special interest parent groups and stuff like that that are like, what are our children watching, Lydia? What is corrupting our youth? Well, all this violence. Well, let's downplay the violence and we'll cut out a lot of the violent sequences that are in these slasher films. We'll just up the nudity. That'll help. And so they tried to sell this film with sex. And this is not the only one. In the last episode, I also mentioned Girls Night Out. It's a great example of another slasher where they just upped the nudity the promise of nudity because let me tell you something like if if people think this movie is chased there ain't no hide nor hair of a naked person in girls night out so if that's what you're looking for in that film you ain't getting it and so what we're left with here is a slasher that i love but it's not very violent even though there's a pretty big body count and not very sexy even though there's a lot of beautiful people in it which is Part of what I do like about it is that it's a showcase of all these very different second wave feminism type of characters that you would meet in an actual sorority house. And I'm not the only one who loves the the dialogue between these girls and how very natural it sounded and how very early 80s it came across. The costuming, the dialogue, the the setting, everything was just very natural, very organic it fit very well. I had a lot of vibes of virgin suicides and I found that even though there is some sort of like almost ethereal quality to the sisters in the virgin suicides and it's a very very different movie, I I felt transported to that era and I felt told I was being told the truth about that era and I was it was very much rooted in reality and I had that same sort of feeling watching this film at the beginning and I wasn't really sure why upon watching the intro to The Virgin Suicides that the differences between the two films are very apparent. But it was that I felt I knew these people. I'd met these people. I'd walked down these streets. I'd gone into the sorority house. I knew these girls. It didn't hurt that one of them looked so much like Kevin Bacon, the, uh, pl- the, the main girl, Catherine McNeil. It was like... I had to look up if they were not related and I swear they probably are. And they're keeping it a big secret because (laughs) she looks like a female Kevin Bacon so much. And you know, him getting his start in in slashers is one thing, but just the way that she 
overacted and the few times where she overacted and the few times that she just sort of let her own personality shine through. She reminded very much of Kevin Bacon and one of the other girls, the coolest girl in the whole world, Diane, reminded me quite a lot of my niece. So <laughs> that helped me make me feel very rooted in this. I was only five years old in the 80s, in the early 80s. So not like I remember a heck of a lot of it, but these were my babysitters. These were my heroes. These were my teenage gods that I looked up to, right? So, of course, they must have left an impression to the point that I watch something like this and feel very rooted in this world. So they did a very good job there, considering this was his first screenplay. <laughs> so, you know, I could. there's a lot mm -hmm. of holes in it that I will point out <laughs> for sure, but there's a lot that he did right. Which brings me to an important question, Lydia. What is this movie even about anyways? I want to know. This movie is about waiting for the other shoe to drop in so many ways. From the beginning where you've got a story and you're waiting for that story in a story. The two stories that are going to commingle eventually. But you got to sit through the whole movie for it to happen. It's a lot like we were talking earlier about this pool. <laughs> the pool. It is so much the snake eating its tail. They don't clean the pool because they don't use the pool. And they don't use the pool because they don't clean the pool. And they don't clean the pool because they don't use the pool. And the pool is this festering mess that is, you know, it plays a great role and it has a great part in this film, which is not unlike Catherine, Katie, our main character, our main girl, who doesn't communicate what's going on in her mind because other people aren't interested in hearing what's going on in her mind, according to the general convention of the last hundred years on planet Earth as a woman. So she's kind of stuck in a mute fashion of not telling people what she thinks is going on or picking up the phone to call police at a certain point and not being able to speak, it seems, because she's got other things going on in her mind, which she's not vocalizing, seeing things that other people should know about that she's not vocalizing. You know, why talk about if no one wants to hear what you're going to talk about? Why clean the pool if no one goes in the pool? <laughs> uh, Katie has uh, an unfortunate couple of scenes where... I really was hoping that the director would be there for her a little bit more and say, let's do one more where you don't sound like you're on Scooby-Doo and you just saw a ghost. Or times where all she has to do, and we have this complaint about so many other movies, people just need to communicate. Not that the movie would be over if somebody communicated a specific line or point or answered a question. It's, you know, if people actually asked for help from one another. She also comes across as the most chauvinist female in the, in the world. Very, very rude to every male around her. Mostly because she refuses to communicate with them. I do like how she gets this blind date of Peter and then <laughs> talks to him like a dog. Uh, and, and that is not an exaggeration. I was watching this with Cassandra and uh, a couple of times we laughed out loud at just like, go on, go. I was like, Jesus, it sounds like we're talking to the dog. This film for me 
very much deserves its cult status. I think that when you are a horror fan and you like the subgenre of slashers specifically, you're always looking for these obscure films. But keep in mind, this film didn't do that bad. It made money. It made its money back. And that was because it was still early enough in the slasher cycle that these films almost couldn't help but make money. And they made it for a song, less than a million dollars, less than half a million dollars. And it goes on to make over $10 million. That's a profit. The difference is, is just like how you, not you, Lydia, but everyone listening right now, you think that all of the music from your generation was the best music. It's because you filtered out all the songs that weren't all that great and you only remember the bangers. And so in that sense, even though this movie did business, lots of people went to go see it. It never got a sequel. Eric is not synonymous with horror as a Jason or a Michael. It just came out, did business, and then went away. Now, the 2009 remake, just called Sorority Row, that brought some attention, kind of, when the film was coming out. But the popularity of Sorority Row has all but eclipsed the original The House on Sorority Row. So even further obscuring it into this realm of slasher fans who want something a little bit different. And I've always loved to recommend this film because fucking half the time people don't even know what I'm talking about. That's the thing that I love the most about being a horror fan who lives on Mars with my head in a hole in the ground in a cave underwater. <laughs> is that I did not know this was remade. I'm very aware of House and Sorority Row and I knew the cover very well. I'd seen it in the rental store a million times. And incidentally, if you really like stories of rental stores, uh, Stuart at From Page to Screen podcast is doing sort of a look back at his time working in a video store and I'm absolutely fucking loving it. It is Uh, So far, it's three parts, and it's just the story. And now he's got a cliffhanger of being moved to another store to work as a manager, and it's just fantastic. So I don't know if that uh, blows your hair back, but it certainly (laughs) works for me. Anyway, the thing that I love about that is that I did not know about Sorority Row, the remake, at all until watching this and trying to do research on it. It is. Maybe not to me the best slasher film in the whole world but it does live among the best written and the best shot ones that's for sure and i'd have to say a a longer list like the top 25 slasher films sure i would put it in there for sure again much like the last film and much like a lot of the films we talk about here on dead air not a lot of academic press has been written about this i expected to see this Like I said, in House of Psychotic Women, I expected to see this in Men, Women and Chainsaws, mostly because of the women character, not how men are treating them. And I think that there's a real disservice when you're looking back at these films, whenever there's women treating men poorly (laughs) or women written really well, no one talks about it. People like to talk about women written poorly, women being mistreated. And sure, there's some women being mistreated in this for sure. 
And there is a lot of weird 50 sensibilities of women not being worth communicating and feeling silenced as a result of that sort of holdover. But they are like really strongly written women and really oddly written women in some ways. I really wanted to read more about. And I can see there's a lot, again, of reviewers and critics talking about this. But no one talking about this as far as think pieces or deep dives into the way these characters are written. Probably because there aren't any sequels. There aren't any real movies that pay homage to this outside of the remake, which there is a scholarly paper and thesis written about for crying out loud, which is nice, I guess. I'll have to watch Sorority Row to have fun reading this uh, paper that I'd found on it. But really nothing outside of critics and reviews. Did you find much to read about this? I know you had read some of the Rock Off books, but have you heard this mentioned the way that we feel it ought to be? Not really. The Aside from this being mentioned in one of Rock Off's books, I don't think I've ever heard The House on Sorority Row mentioned anywhere else not in like things like real terror or uh anything like that so i don't know like sometimes i think that when there's something specific to discuss about the more obscure slasher films you're going to see more information done because people can find a egg of an idea to latch onto. But what is the house on Sorority Road doing that other slashers aren't doing in a more pronounced way? It's not very it's not very violent. There's a good body count, but um that there there's not very graphic. It's almost classy how some of these people are dispatched. Um there's some nudity, but it's 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 not lascivious it's it's not you know prolonged or anything like that the there's more prolonged nudity in slumber party massacre a, a horror film written and directed by women to so you know the, i just think that that probably has a lot to do with it what i think the house of sorority row does better and even though there is a the, the let's call it the B story of the film is not serviced in a way that I find at all satisfying it in, in terms of the, no, in, yeah, in, to I the agree. point in which it's almost baffling how there's all these scenes between uh, the good doctor and Mrs. Slater that ultimately are meaningless. But I would put this overall story, the A story about a group of women who in a prank gone awry ditch a body in like a meatballs type scenario where they also have this rager where they keep having to be at a party, be present, be pleasant, and also keep people from discovering a body. And they're just running in and out of rooms like it's a sitcom. But it's it's played very straight, with the exception of perhaps the sea pig scene, where that is just flat comedy. But I, I think what this film can offer people is a really 
good story. I like the story of the House of Sorority Row. I really genuinely do. And I like, with a few weak points um, by the actors, I mean, you know, Catherine McNeil, we were kind of busting her chops a little bit. She would go on to do Monkey Shine. She's much better in that film. Uh, So, you know, there's that aspect of it too. But yeah, I, I just think that it's almost in some people's minds too generic to really offer much in the way of an academic paper. I would love to see one specifically on Catherine McNeil's character, Katie Catherine, because she just goes through the ringer emotionally, but it's mostly painted on her face. It's not vocalized very often. And there are points in this that there's two things in this film that I really enjoyed that were actually quite tense from a slasher um, horror film point of view where there is a girl being stalked by a killer. And that's really the, the convention. That is what a slasher film ultimately is. There's different twists on it and there's different ways to go about it. And you can gender swap all you like. But that's really what it is. It's a, it's somebody who is vulnerable being stalked by somebody in a position of power, whether that be with a weapon or what have you. And there are some scenes in this that do that so effectively. And the, the lighting and the sound is on point. So you've got those accoutrements that are dressing up the story and the story stands in these scenes. There are some scenes that I, w- I wish had been just, like you said, another take perhaps to uh, really nail the emotion or the look of a scene or another another pass in editing to maybe tie some loose ends together a little better or to strengthen a character or to maybe downplay a character that doesn't need to be uh, made as important like some of the boyfriends one of them <laughs> needs more screen time one of them needs less one of them needs more story and character one of them needs less they seem to try and balance them for whatever reason, and they it just doesn't quite work. And it comes across as insulting to both of those men, because one comes off as a useless chauvinist peg, and the other one comes across as a, a useless noodle of a man. And it's really cruel when you've got these, you know, what mm-hmm. is it, seven strong women around you, whether they be dead or alive. But then you've got that one set piece the one set piece that will forever be burned in my memory as the the height of this film, which is a head in the toilet. And I almost want to make like a standee where you have a, you can <laughs> stand behind it, you know, and put your head through and be the head in the toilet. I want to make one of those because it looks so cool. And it's not just the head in the toilet that is so cool. It is everything you've gone through up to that point with Catherine that you maybe don't realize how strong of an impact she's having because she she has some lines. Of course, she has some lines. She's the main girl, but they're never really very loaded. There's so much more going on in her mind that you know of in her face that she's expressing. And it's not until the point where she is hiding from a killer that you it really all culminates and you you realize that this is a good film, it seems to me. Yeah, I, I really wholeheartedly agree with uh, Catherine McNeil's performance. There are so many scenes in which 
these women are talking over each other to the point in which between Vicky and Liz and Diane, my favorite, just chain smoking, angry Diane, who like the way that she's written, particularly in the beginning of the film, you'd be like, oh, this is this is a major this is one of our final girls. I'm like, no, this is one of seven characters that are all going to have a very distinct personality and she's like the tough one that's how I always interpret her um, but mm-hmm. so many characters talk over Catherine and and you she is left to react within her face and I would wonder if she was hired because of how expressive she is without dialogue because there's an entire sequence of this film where she does not speak she is out of it. So so was it more important to hire an actor who could communicate non-verbally in a way that is compelling? We'll leave the dialogue to everybody else, but you are hired specifically for this. And again, I don't think that she's not a capable actor. There's just one scene in particular, and we'll get to it when we break down the plot a little bit, where I was just like, God, like this is such a pivotal scene, and Jesus Christ, there's not a better take of this. Like, anyway. Yeah, it, I had the exact same feeling, and it's it's laughable to a point, and it's it's insulting to a point, but uh, yeah. Speaking of the girls talking over Catherine, they all talk over one another and it comes Mm -hmm. across very naturally. If you are a fan of the Quentin Tarantino sitting around a table at a restaurant, everyone talking about nothing scenes, which some people hate and some people love because it is character building and you get to know people and it's natural. They are sitting around after the blue and black scene of uh, Caesarean Mm -hmm. section. After the introduction of the pool yes. as a character <laughs> by the parent, the mother of Catherine, who's just like, why don't you guys ever swim in the pool? Like your house mother is such a bitch, <laughs> basically. We, we get to meet all of these girls. They're having a few drinks in their sorority room. Now, this isn't unlike Black Christmas in a lot of ways because we get to meet some very cool girls breaking the rules with a house mother who isn't breaking rules along with them. She is extremely strict. Mrs. Slater, or Miss Slater, I guess she's a Ms. Slater, is she not? Yeah, she would come off as a Ms. Yeah, Ms. Slater and her cane that she stomps around, basically barking <laughs> orders at people with all of the fucking time. Horrible, horrible, horrible witch of a woman. <laughs> but they seem to be in defiance of that, and they're just... Drinking out of their Thetify mugs. They have like, what are those schooners? Is that what you call those? I'm pretty sure that's what you call like them. A yeah. Stein. Yeah. Not quite a Stein because this, I always, a, a Stein always has like the lid part to mm-hmm. it, I think. But I think you're right with schooner. But they're matching. I like that. I was like, for a, for a sorority, that drinking seems to be absolutely not allowed. They all have uh, matching accoutrements. To yeah. go along with their alcoholism. <laughs> Which is adorable. But we get to meet them all in turn. Diane, that super tough looking girl. We have Morgan, the very posh kind of semi-reserve. They're all very sexy girls. And they and they sort of drop hints that they're all very knowledgeable in the ways of the women. And we have Liz, 
a very regular kind of chick. I don't know. She just strikes me as just the regular girl. Liz with her tightly permed hair, really the the most different looking of all of the girls, but also very Mm. polished and maybe athletic kind of looking girl. They're not all very different either. And that's what reminded me, I think, of Virgin Suicides is that they are all very same-ish looking girls. And it reminded me somewhat It reminded me somewhat of Curtains, where all the girls are really so similar and the differences in them are very subtle. Uh, And I enjoyed that because it seemed a little more natural. You don't have to have such disparate caricatures of people to pull off characterization, uh, where Morgan and Diane seem to be really the most different chicks out of all of Mm -hmm. these girls. Stevie, who seems to be quite... um reserved she is kind of the person who gets like the shit work like go handle this go do that um and and these a lot of these orders are coming from the ringleader the queen bee the one with the gun which is vicky herself vicky um what i like about the early moments of this film with these women is the fact that any one of them, like you said earlier, could be a final girl. Any one of them can command a scene and you're not really sure if this is the first time you've seen this movie. Well, maybe it would be the person who had a scene with their mom, but we don't know for sure because all of these women are earning their scenes that they're in, which is great because none of these women were um, SAG actors. These were all brand new people that they basically picked up in open calls Um, with the exception of like a couple of veteran actors. Miss Slater obviously was somebody who had been on stage for years, but um, so when you have these, um, groups of women all kind of like getting their personalities across in these big group scenes. They don't fucking really give you a chance to spend some personal time with them because these, this is about a group of women working as a group and the one who seems the angriest of them all is Vicky. Now I don't know if it's because she really wanted to have sex and that got interrupted Because, Lydia, if you can't swim in a pool, why don't you just wrap a pool in a mattress and call it a waterbed? That's like a pool in your bedroom. And And if pieces taught me anything, there's nothing more titillating than smoking a joint and fucking on a waterbed. (laughs) Oh, you might be right about that. They are all under the thumb or the, you know, cane we should say, of Miss Slater. Now, Miss Slater is an institution around these here parts, Lydia. She is this house mother and the last of her generation, as the girls keep referring to her as. And so we can even see pictures on the wall that indicate that almost like a Nosferatu, Slater has been through the years with a different group of girls all the time. Now there is quite a few women in the sorority. It's not just a sorority house of seven, which I pointed out. This isn't like revenge of the nerds. Like if there was a sorority house with only seven members in it, they would like not 
let that sorority continue. But the seven women are the ones that are graduating. And this, in their final days of university, before they enter the world and become adults, they want to throw one last hurrah. But the problem with throwing any kind of hurrah is that they are not allowed to have parties. Slater is the type of person who's like, no drinking, no boys, no sex, no parties, or anything. And she rules that sorority house with an iron fist. But there is something to look forward to because the whole place shuts down June 19th. You know, Miss Slater doesn't let anyone hang around. She closes down the entire place and kicks everybody out. So these girls are trying to stay on a couple days so they can throw a party once everything's over, which is kind of weird to me because they're like done, done. Like they have no more classes. School year's over. They've graduated. They have like their mortar boards and their gowns and everything. So is, is having a party really that important? Why don't you all just go home? It's a victory I would wanna... lap, man. Oh, that makes sense. Sorry, I interrupted you. You can finish saying, I, I would want to go home. <laughs> I would want to go home. I it, really would. It's definitely the victory lap, I feel, in that they're not going to take a whole other year because that's what people would refer to them, people taking a grade 13 or 14 as after they've actually <laughs> graduated, coming back to improve their grades. No, they're coming back to be big man on campus, to smoke out at the Rock, to go to the same parties, to attend East West or the Panda Games or whatever the fucking else people do in high school that they can't let go of, Wes. But yeah, that's what I think part of it is. And they're jealous. Every other sorority house gets to stay on and have little parties. This is the only one that closes down that weekend, which makes me think they don't understand how calendars work because there's not an even number of days in a year and the weekend isn't always June 19th, but uh, okay. <laughs> well, we need it to coincide with the mysterious date from 1961 that they don't know about yet, but we as an audience do. Uh, I want to say just right off the jump, this is probably one of the worst kept twists in a slasher movie that I can think of. I'm not a particularly bright man. And uh, don't interrupt me. No, I know you want to. I know you want to, to heat me with a whole bunch of praise. You're smart, Wes. No, I appreciate that. I'm not. And what I'm not good at doing is is uh, figuring out what the what the twist of a slasher movie usually is. I'm like the last person to know. Like even even sometimes when the killer's face is revealed, I have like a good thirty to forty seconds where I'm like, "Who is that supposed to be?" <laughs> I yeah. don't get it. That's better like than the, not trying, in a way. You know, <laughs> but. In this, from the op- from the jump, you're just like, okay, so you didn't they didn't lose the baby, right? And then when Dr. Beck talks to Slater later in the hospital, I'm like, yeah, so like the kid's alive, right? And it's like she shuts down the because the kid's alive, right? Like it's not <laughs> like am I crazy here? Is it not just like not well executed? They're relying on the fact that someone looks at you gravely and sort of almost nods their head and purses their lips. 
as an answer. <laughs> and they do that with quite a few people in this film. And it's like trying to make fetch happen. They're trying to make fetch happen, Wes. They're trying to make <laughs> that be an ambiguous response when it's really like they just cut them off before they actually responded. That's how I feel a lot of the times in this in this film. <laughs> there's there's literally moments where you know, it's like, if you don't help me, I'll tell everyone what you did all those years ago. Like, no, no, not that. Like, look at the camera. Wink. Eric's dead for real. Um, so I think that that could, like, kind of dull uh, dull people's excitement for this. Because, you're all, like, there's nothing more frustrating than waiting for characters to figure out what you a reasonably intelligent person could figure out in about two seconds of watching this film. But we got some hijinks lids. We got some hijinks and shenanigans to go on because, well, you know, Vicky was trying to get laid like you do. And not only has Miss Slater said no, no to this party that she, by the way, if you're trying to have a secret party to, and you're trying to keep it from your house mother and you're all trying to hide the fact that you're staying on a couple of days past the day in which the sorority house is going to be on lockdown like it is every single year. Maybe don't have a, like a group of seven of you get together, drunkenly proclaim loudly everything that you're going to be doing while you know Miss Slater is still in the fucking house. Like, what the hell? So she says, no, they're going to do it anyways. And then, and then Vicky tries to have sex. Her waterbed is destroyed and that thing's brand new. It's probably like she, $800. Her, she says her dad bought it for her in a, in a sexy way, whether that's true or not, we'll never, ever know. But yeah, I'd be pissed too, but like this pissed, would you be this pissed about it? Let me ask you this, Lydia, because this, this, this ties into how pissed I would be enough to kill or pretend to kill this prank is wild. I don't know. Was the, is the prank to get Slater into the gross pool? She refuses to clean or is the prank to scare her? What is it both? Or did Vicky always intend to shoot her? Because I don't know. The gun is apparently loaded with blanks and this is how Brandon Lee died. If I'm not mistaken, that's so, correct. Like, and you know, even an unloaded gun, there can be like uh, large dust particles or a beetle that crawl in there that can inflict a lot of damage from an unloaded gun. So, like, you just don't fuck around with guns. I don't own guns. And there was a point in this, I was watching with this with Chris, and the girls are passing the gun around before the prank actually happens as if it's you know little boys passing around a centerfold magazine they found in the forest and it's weird but i'm like well i can see teenage girls doing that they'd never held a gun before seen one up close and i mean i i, I get it in a way i think he's got some very rudimentary lessons from her her boyfriend studley mcstutherson and <laughs> do we ever learn his name it's Rick. We did learn his name. We did yeah. learn his name. Okay, slick Rick. We um, <laughs> she like she doesn't really know what she's doing. So did she intend to shoot her? Maybe. Did she want to get her in the pool? Obviously. So like 
this is one of those points where I wish the writing was a little tighter. We didn't need Slick Rick and his gun. We really didn't. The only sign of Slick Rick and his gun we needed was in the waterbed scene. Now, she could have just tripped over vines growing around the unkempt pool, and it would have been enough of like, see, that's what happens when you don't clean your pool. That would have worked. She could have hit her head. There's all sorts of problems you can have by falling in that pool. She could fall in that pool and be attacked by an anaconda. Like there could be all kinds of things that go on with that. We didn't need this like problem with the gun. I, I I don't know. It was just weird. And the fake having shot one of their other legs, like like having a squib. When do they prepare the squib? Well, I guess they've got lots of time because not only did they prepare this prank to get shooting lessons, prepare a squib to show like a fake getting shot in the leg and then have the time to like steal her cane and put the cane in the pool floating on a tire. They've hired a band and decorated for their party. (laughs) This shit goes so south that it's almost hysterical that there is a point in which they shoot Miss Slater on accident. You would, let's just say the gun went off. Miss Slater's killed. They established fairly quickly that she's dead. And within minutes, they have her mummy wrapped in bed sheets. And they're just like, we're just going to, Throw her fucking ass in the pool. This, by the way, is all coming at the same time that uh, Dr. Beck, who is the doctor from the opening credit sequence, the prologue, um, saying that because of the traumatic event that happened, you know, 20 years ago, you know, Slater is mentally ill and it's been exacerbated by her advanced age would you like to know how old Slater was when she was filming this movie I absolutely would because I'm terrified that she's younger than I am 54 oh good she's older than I am but still yeah advanced age Wes (laughs) she's got brain worms if you look at those (laughs) x-rays properly Jesus Christ I was like, could you imagine that in like 15 years, someone is going to refer to me as like, oh, Wes, you and your advanced age. I'm like, 54? Come on. That's not advanced. Give me a break. Like, but maybe to kids it was, but like, I don't know how old um, Slater is supposed to be in the film, but I'm telling you that the actress Louise Kelso Hunt was only 54 years old. I I stopped everything and I was like, wait, how old was how old was this woman cuz she didn't seem that old to me at the time. Um and even though she's got gray hair, she doesn't really look all that old. But anyways, she is rolled into this carpet and like like you couldn't time it better out of like a fucking Chuck Lorre sitcom. It's like the band is here and you're like the band you say the band and yes this is we are going like full 
New Year's Evil. We got fucking lights. We've got a stage. We've got like a professional band. We've got like fucking what are you, 150 guests. We have streamers. We have all kinds of things. This is a rager. This is a rager. And I think we really do like, you know, there was a, a film like this with a birthday party and clowns and all of that, that where there's a party going on and there's horror going on outside. You got it somewhat in other, like, even if someone wants to liken the pool party of Nightmare on Elm Street, like there's probably people inside the house partying away that have no idea what's going on outside. Horror, like supreme horror going on around this house. But inside the band plays on like a sinking Titanic. And quite a band they are as well. I was hoping they wouldn't play like full songs, but we do get a pretty good sampler of what this band has on offer. Mm -hmm. And this extremely 1980s mm -hmm. cock rock radio safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I really do like that juxtaposition of a party, a full on party of equally advanced age people it seems like again in many <laughs> films where everyone is 55 year old barney rebels but somehow attending a sorority party it comes off as quite creepy because there are some very barney rubble looking barney rubbles in there and some fred flintstones i might add as well <laughs> and it just it, it never sits right that these like 40 year old people are being passed off as 20 year olds partying uh for graduation but yeah it, it really does juxtapose well with the brightly lit sounds of blonde haired blue eyed cock rock happening in the party and the dark stalker killer situation that they have going on outside because it's not too long after there is a kill that has to do with the cane so we have the feeling that Mrs. Slater is not still in the pool and they get verification pretty soon that Mrs. Slater is not still in the pool let me ask you this when you were when when what do you think the motivation was to introduce a whole bunch of characters in almost like a montage these are party goers and the film gives a sense of you know you have a couple of girls that are like pi data beta theta what is it like and then you have like those trio of boys one of whom is the sea pig and you have you have all of these characters kind of like get introduced and you'd think, oh, OK, here's more victims. That's how this comes across to me as a person watching a slasher movie. Nary a slash to be had just yet, except for this one random dude who just gets like fucking killed. And you're like, oh, whoa, I, I forgot that we were watching like a slasher movie here. And. No. None of these characters are relevant to the plot. It's just to remind you that there is a party going on. A very slamming party at that, where not only is it random party goers, we're also introduced to Pete. Oh, Pete. Um, what do you want to say about old Pete, old dishrag Pete? I, this, the inclusion of this character is baffling to me. I think that it is a, um, either a missed opportunity or an opportunity they tried to take and, and miss the mark entirely, uh, making him some sort of uh, red herring because he would be about Eric's age. 
he looks like an Eric. I think that he would have fit very well as being some sort of like undercover Slater's son or something like that. Um, and I think that that was what we were supposed to try and make sense of with his character. It comes off to me as shit left on the fucking floor. The cutting room floor, that is. It, I I cannot fucking fathom. Because what was there a more complex sequence in which Peter shows up as a third act save the day guy is was there more to it than that now i know there's an alternate ending to this film that i'll we'll talk about at the end of the film at at the end of the discussion of the plot but it has nothing to do with peter so no exactly (laughs) so i would wonder what the fucking point of that is and also even just narratively speaking catherine is having a time they just killed somebody. The body is like they, they're trying to proceed as if and there's great sequences, by the way. I love I love, 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 love this party going on and the, the women trying to keep people away from the pool. They don't want to turn the pool lights on. They don't want people around the pool. There's an instant where a couple of people are going to be jumping a girl in there like that's horrendous because that fucking pool is putrid there's those three boys that like let's go swimming in our underwear again that fucking pool is putrid it's disgusting but it does reveal that the body of slater is not in that location and so you have all of these scenes where this party is going on and the the women are uh, conspiring with each other in the kitchen moving into hallways moving into dark corners trying to ascertain where each other are trying to figure out where slater could be has the body been moved is slater still alive what is going on these sequences are fucking great and i fucking love how this is all they'll cut back to the party and they all have to act as if everything is fucking fine however the the massive fucking problem I have with all of that is this schlubby guy, Peter, shows up and and Vicky, their sort of ringleader, is like was trying to set her up on a blind date. For starters, Catherine is leaving like fucking tomorrow. Why are you <laughs> what what the fuck? What what's with this blind date? And then when she's clearly upset, she does not want to talk to this guy. He, this is not the fucking time, nor should it be. I'm not saying it should be. It makes perfect sense that Catherine should tell this guy to fuck off. And then when he just hound dog expression kicks the dirt, oh yeah, I guess blind dates are silly. (laughs) I'm out of here. She's like, no, Peter, wait. Excuse me, what? Wait? Why? You did the right thing by telling this guy to fuck off. This is not the time for dates and Peter and this, that, and the other thing. What is what is the fucking point of calling this fucking character back? Who, by the way, spoilers, has nothing to do with anything. I think it's mostly so that she has someone to exert onto. Someone she can order around. Someone she can confuse. Someone she can treat like a woman. Unfortunately, there is a few scenes of this female chauvinism that shine through 
the treatment of the character Pig. His name is Pig for crying out loud. When him and his cronies, two other thinner gentlemen, are looking at this sludgy pool and they're like, ooh, I don't want to go in there. Pig says, looks good to me. Playing up this this idea of dirty men don't know any better. Dirty, old, stinky, fat men will just jump in a stinky pool because they don't know. He's played for laughs, a sea pig scene. And I don't think it's very funny because it's like, yeah, yeah, men are, are smelly and they like smelly things and they like to roll in the dirt like a pig. Like, it's just, it's just, it's rude to me and it is a sexist thing. So to treat Peter the way that she does is a, another facet of the, the cuckold kind of man, the uh, spineless man that she can order around and, and assert what strengths she has, which isn't a lot considering all of the other women talk over her and her house mother has ordered her around. She seems to have a good relationship with her own mother and she isn't like completely underfoot, but I really think that he's called back so that she has somebody to assert over because if she didn't, she would be at the very bottom of the social hierarchy here. So she needs that layer below her. And unfortunately, it's poor Peter. That's the way I see that. And then they have the other kind of useless, used slick Rick, who's nothing but used for sex to the point of the symbol for the, the sex type weapon that is used at the beginning and throughout later in this movie, the gun, which has used as a euphemism for penis for so many times. So Slick is totally just used for his dick entirely. And it's just this weird, subtle, like everything else in this movie, it's a very subtle characterization of these men that I just find so tasteless. And this is where I wish that there were papers on this, the way that the women are written as strong and varied and believable. These men are just caricatures and it's unflattering and insulting. Hey, baby, fucking rats and snails and puppy dog tails. You know what I'm saying? I just want to smell like dirt. You know, I just want to taste dirt. I want to be in dirt. That's an interesting way to put it. I never really thought about it that way. Rick always just seemed like the guy with the gun to me. Although Paul Stanley taught us that love gun is a penis. So, <laughs> so, and it's no rifle. It's no <laughs> rifle. It's not. <laughs> um, this is a slasher movie lids and I have not seen enough slashes. I've seen some red herrings. I've seen some hijinks. I've seen some sea pigs. Uh, don't you worry, don't you fret, because old Stevie is going to die. Oh, no, she's not. This film is heavily edited for its violence. So that is just like a warning to anyone who's quite the gore hound. You are going to, it's going to seem a lot like you're watching one of the later Friday the 13th films in which uh, a lot of that footage was cut out and unfortunately lost. Maybe one day it'll show up, but for now the versions that you're going to be getting are fairly, fairly tame. And so the one thing that how this works well is when Stevie is not killed, you get a bit of a jump scare that makes, and a cut, the cut can be like, Oh, okay, well that person's dead. No, she's not. She was just knocked unconscious by some, by a, an attic ladder and she's going to have some water. Now, 
with all of these people trying to figure out where Slater is and also trying to keep things secret, also trying to be present at the party so no one gets suspicious. You have a lot of activity going on at the same time. And, oh, who's the first one to die? Is it Stevie? I think so. I was positive it was Stevie, yeah. Yeah. After she goes and gets a drink of whiskey. <laughs> I need something stronger. <laughs> like, I like when she wakes up. She's like, oh, water. Oh, I need something stronger. That's but a funny they're line. They're like, oh, she's fine. Yeah. Some of the, the understated comedy in this is pretty gold. Yes. I, I really think that there's um there's a lot of really good one-liners and they don't linger on anything like there's almost like a sitcom you're waiting for the audience laugh for some of the things but since it doesn't come you just kind of move past it and um the other thing that it does is characters don't acknowledge when each other are making jokes it's like a weird thing where you know when you take the laugh track out of a sitcom and everyone comes off as kind of like a sociopath because they're just like throwing out insults and, and saying really creepy shit to each other. This kind of has like that same vibe, although not as sinister, weirdly, even though these women are all culpable in murder. Um, Vicky is definitely playing that role of the person who definitely wants to make sure that everything stays under wraps. They're all starting their lives out. And even though I don't know what they plan on happening like they're going to have this party people aren't going to suspect anything and then they all go home and by the time anyone finds Slater they won't know what the fuck happened I guess that's her plan I know like from the beginning Catherine has been much like I would react with like okay well party's over let's call the cops and like no 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 we're just going to put her body in the pool and then when the next time they they discover her body basically she's like okay time to call the cops <laughs> and they're like new 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 all the other girls really just want this to be swept under the rug so to speak vicky's the ringleader of that sentiment the other girls tend to agree with it because i don't recall any other girl saying anything like we need to notify authorities <laughs> except for Catherine, who actually falls into that again later on in the film but at this point there is something in the attic. I was saying Stevie earlier got bonked. It's actually Morgan gets bonked. Stevie dies in the basement. She's the one when they go to turn the breaker lights off of the pool. I got the name switched up and then I like deleted one of the kills. But when Morgan gets bonked and she needs a stronger drink, um, that's when they just assume like in a lot of slashers that Stevie is off doing something else. Just like they assume that the body of Mrs. Slater just crawled out of the pool and all around the house and upstairs by itself. Is that what they figure out? Because the body comes tumbling out of this attic storage. And I don't know, a horror movie isn't a horror movie unless they have one of those pull down attic storage stairs. <laughs> I don't know. Is that is that true? Do you have one of those in your house? Because I sure don't. And this is not a horror movie. I thought you did have one of those fucking pull down spooky attics did you have in your old house nope i wish i did i wish i did no we only have a like a little 
a little access where you need a ladder if you're going to be like putting insulation up there or whatever. Uh, yeah. We had like a door, like a door within the door of my closet in my house growing up that that was like technically speaking it was the same kind of deal like it was just like you could see the insulation on the inside of the house but i guess in theory you could also use it for storage although we never did it scared the fucking shit out of me um not as much as it would if there was a fucking dead old lady in there which of course i always suspected as a youth now we don't really have 100% proof that this is a dead old lady we have a body wrapped in bullshit that falls they don't really like verify for us that this is who it is so it does leave a little hole for the plot to carry on the way that it does in that there is a body that falls out they have killed somebody namely mrs slater so that's whose body it must be correct if they don't clean the pool no one goes in the pool no one goes in the pool because they don't clean the pool they have a dead body wrapped in burlap that's got to be mrs slater right probably um here's the number one thing that where how do how do you get rid of a body lids there's a million different ways but one way is to put it where there's already bodies i love that they don't explain their theory here because they're like they just like i know in the graveyard no one will find it there and it's like, no, no, you got to take that a step further. You have to say you're doing what the mob apparently does, allegedly, bury bodies under other bodies, because that leads to another one of my favorite scenes in this later on. But I wish that they would have said just with a couple more words. Yeah, if we put her in an already dug grave, they'll put another body on top and no one will ever find her. It's brilliant. It is. It's my favorite body disposal. It's so much better than feeding someone to pigs. Really, honestly. But yeah, so that's what they're going to do. To get her there, they're going to put her in one of those big wheelie dumpsters. They got this little wheelie dumpster, which has been used in Crime and Memorial as well. So this is a very well thought out little crime by these girls. I love it because they got to get the body out of there and carry on with the party. How are they supposed to party with a body? <laughs> I don't know. I saw Weekend at Bernie's and they managed just fine. So well, that would have made this a whole different movie where Sea Pig would have fit a lot better. <laughs> you know, the, this this film descends into like murder to slasher to full on caper. This is a caper. This is where they're at. They've they've turned into this whole situation into a caper because bodies, wheelbarrows vans to drive the body places while they can't let anyone be any of the wiser it 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 just keeps escalating but they're going to try their very best to uh make sure that this uh goes off without a hitch this time speaking of a hitch while this caper is going on we have a hitchcockian kind of set upstairs where there's a whole other different movie going on it seems because Katie decides I'm going to investigate this attic and finds not only her hound dog expression boyfriend Pete, who suddenly comes upstairs to accompany her to see where she was or whatever, she discovers all of these children's toys. Now, like, like you, I was just waiting for the story to unfold 
because we knew she hadn't lost the baby and had gone mental. So like this is all being telegraphed to us already. So it's not like, I don't know, the the mystery in front of this very well-decorated, interesting-looking attic is lost on us, unfortunately. The attic looks cool. There are toys in the attic, which is a euphemism for mental instability. Um, so I think that it's just a very good metaphor. And it's set very well. There's holes in the weird walls in this attic that you kind of got to crawl through. So it's very Alice through the looking glass. There's all sorts of cool metaphors going on up there that are wasted because we already knew what was supposed to be revealed by all of this, unfortunately. But it looks cool nevertheless. You got a creepy jack-in-the-box and a bird cage and all kinds of stuff. I do love the jack-in-the-box. Every time that I watch this film, I forget the final look of the killer. And and I'm watching it. I'm like, wait, is this the one with the the jack-in-the-box? Oh, it is. You have a cool hanging costume. I do like that they return to it later. Um, Again, it's not exactly like, oh, my God. It's very telegraphed. But at the same time, I like it. It works for me. Like a lot of things, the, the, the dead bird the dead caged bird, um, you know, works for me too. uh, telling Peter to fuck off also works for me. Like, get out of here, you fucking wiener. And th- the thing that doesn't work for me, oh, my hero, my lady, Diane, she's the one that's charged with, um, going ahead and getting the van and driving that body. But she's promptly killed. Uh, again, one of the more unceremonious kills, a lot of these kills because they cut away so fast, it's hard to really say what happens to them. And anytime that they do focus in on any of the violence or the gore, the prosthetics that they use with the colorization have this weird graying effect. So it always looks like just like a very gray, like the party goer that gets killed at the be like initially, it's just very obviously like this gray skinned like dummy part. Diane's hand gets impaled. Um, one of the more effective kills, honestly, is when people are uh, the the one that's done in silhouette where the, the stabbing is all done in shadow. I thought that was actually like really, really well done. Aside from the set piece coming up involving Jeannie, who is the one to drop after Diane. Yeah, the mannequins don't really look good at all. A lot of this prosthetics don't look good. It's just too rubbery looking. And of course, the uh, facial construction on the dummy doesn't look exactly like who it's supposed to. And you try and like fix that with some quick cuts. Doesn't really work. Not that I paused it to investigate the special effects any further, but you don't need to. You can see it. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't look realistic. And that's a shame because there is some interesting inventive little kills, lots of stabbing through the throat, a lot of stabbing from behind, that sort of stuff. A lot of throat damage going on here, which is great. And that's what you want when you got to keep people quiet because there's an entire party of people going on. There's hundreds of people at this house. So you don't want anyone screaming. Well, Lydia, you're about to get your wish. Finally, thanks to a little thing that I'd like to call medic alert you are going to finally 
converge the stories of the fiendish or perhaps maybe not fiendish shady Dr. Beck is going to be contacted by Katie. She finds uh, where Slater's body was in the bedroom before she, she got carted away in the wheelbarrow was her, her medical information her medical or bracelet or necklace chain thing. And so Katie calls it and you know, Dr. Beck ascertains what has happened. And this is a doctor that does make house calls. He does. He rushes straight over there and he's on full Loomis. All he needs is a gun. He's like full Loomis mode. And I do enjoy these scenes happening subsequently. And there are like kind of two things going on here. You've got the caper that is wrapping up where they're trying to cart the body to the graveyard in a garbage bin because unfortunately Diane died in the van. So they don't have the van to carry the body in. So there's three of the girls carrying the body and they are pushing the squeaky <laughs> garbage container full of a body down a road and they bump into a car a cop car with a cop in it. And the cop is just like, hello, ladies, what have you gotten the thing? And they're like, oh, nothing. Luckily, he gets another call. And this happened to me the night that Kurt Cobain was found murdered or dead. Why did I say murdered? I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not pointing fingers at all. I do believe it was suicide, 100%. But yes, <laughs> the night that Kurt Cobain, the news of Kurt Cobain's death hit the airwaves, I had pulled up in front of a store and a police officer pulled up beside us and I was panicking because I had my learner's permit and my driving buddy who did have her full license was drunk. So I'm like, I don't think that that's going to fly. I don't know if the cops are going to really like this, that I'm the designated driver, but I only have my learner's permit. So I don't know if that's what he's going to think of that. And he stopped us and he asked us what we were doing. He started with like routine cop questions and then he got another call. And he was gone. And we never got like questions. Like, I don't know why he stopped us. I found out later that the sticker was expired on the license plate. It wasn't my car. It was my father's. And he routinely forgot to renew the sticker on his license plate at the time. But the cop here gets a call and the girls don't have their garbage can looked at. He doesn't ask why one of them ran away. The one that was covered in blood subsequently ran back to the house and they get to carry on their merry way to bury this body in the graveyard and get their party dresses covered in mud. Like just a totally different story. The caper as it were via V the Agatha Christie Hitchcockian murder party that is going on now with the good doctor. The thing that's, the most wild about that police situation is the fact that his vehicle was damaged by this. He lost the front headlight and it was almost like, all right, you ah, these kids hit my car. All right. You know, he's asking his questions and shit. It's like, you're throwing out the garbage at like one 30 in the morning. Why are you doing that? Um, when Katie and Dr. Beck converge, that's where we find bodies and it seems as though our killer is like you put Slater in the pool I'm putting you in the pool you're all gross pool bodies now um what do you want to say about 
this sequence beforehand where Katie and the doctor meet up just before she discovers the body, or maybe it's just afterwards. I think it's just before. And they're riding in the car. And this is where Dr. Beck finally gets the actual story. Because remember, at this point, Katie has been very cagey about what happened to Mrs. Slater. And um, she admits everything. And she sort of heart-wrenchingly tries to explain it was a prank. It had gone wrong. She didn't want to do it. Um, you know, this was all horrible. This this night's terrible. Man, her this take of her speech, I just was watching it and just lamenting the fact that they 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 went with maybe this was the best one. I don't know. I don't know how many times she had a chance to do this, but holy fuck, this is a critical bit of information and this is her biggest acting moment with dialogue that she gets in the entire film and it's just not well done. Neither is her next uh, heart-wrenching scene where she doesn't have dialogue, but it's her expressions are overblown. But I, this, I, yeah, I don't, it, it definitely needed another take. It definitely needed a couple more. It definitely needed some coaching as to like, tell me about terrible circumstances or how would you relay this information if you had a sucking chest wound? Because that would have worked better than pull every word out of your mouth as if it's stuck in the back with glue. Because that's just a weird way to show. Like, that's not how people who are trying to tell something. I think that they would talk more rapidly because the words would come tumbling out because they're finally able to tell somebody. And that's what I expected when she was able to tell somebody. Not this weird guilt-ridden pulling each word out like it's impossible to do. It certainly doesn't help that her next reaction is a nonverbal one to, and it really, and again, I promised to stop doing this, like comparing this movie to that movie and all that kind of stuff. But do you know what her performance in seeing the uh, Stevie Morgan, Diane's bodies in the pool, it really reminded me of the dude from rabid, just like a non reaction to just like, and you could argue that she's in shock and and I I accept that and how people respond to trauma that's open to interpretation I'm just saying for the sake of the movie for the sake of like could you scream could you react could there be a line could she say something she doesn't say anything and it's almost as if she's not present in the scene and then she has the next reaction which is to Jeannie's head in a toilet and it's almost the exact same nonverbal like like she just saw a cockroach. In between all of these non-reaction reactions that we get from her, even her kind of non-reactions to Pete earlier in the film, there are a few where she's like contorting her face with anguish and it's like she's doing these like soundless screams and grabbing her face and her hair and wrenching her herself around in torment 
that absolutely don't fit with the Katie we've come to know and love who has barely any reaction at all to anything aside from the look on her in her eyes, which is conveying so much and works so well when it works. Otherwise we have, that's why I expected to see this in house of psychotic women because her reactions to things are all over the map and like absolutely do not fit with her character especially when she's doing the whole I'm going to tear my hair out and scream wordlessly in agony kind of scenes mm-hmm. at the edges of the pool and looking into the van. Like in between that though, she has this stoic non-reaction, um, which I, I do love in, because there is a hint of a shocked reaction at least when she is in the bathroom, mm-hmm. but her, character is just really all over the place and needed some, some coaching or something, or at least to like refer back to how she reacted to things and amp it up a little bit as it goes along instead of being all over the place. Well, the party's over lids. The house is dark. All of these random characters that had shown up for a little bit are gone. Pete is still there. He fell asleep in his car and you're like, oh, good, Pete's here. It's the last you'll ever see of him. We learn the terrible secret, the terrible plot. You see, here's what's really going on, Lids. Now, you're not wearing a hat, but I'd like you to go find one and hold on to it. So I'm going to hold on to my hat, <laughs> and I'm going to make sure I'm sitting down. Um, I'm glad you're sitting down. So... Turns out, uh, yeah, Eric didn't die in childbirth like he had said. He lived, and so there was this controversial insemination process. And consequently, since Dr. Beck performed that, and Eric was born with deformations, whatever that means, uh, I suppose also he's mentally stunted. I guess that's the idea. Uh, he's been this horrible creature man living up. Uh, what was it Hugo in the Simpsons? He's just like this horrible, evil child, now adult with a dead bird and a bunch of weird toys living in the attic. And his birthday is June 19th. And so Slater shut down the sorority house June 19th, even though everyone's school's fucking over anyway is like well over by June 19th um, uh, to celebrate his birthday, I suppose. So she can what? Bring him a fucking cake. Is that what she fucking does? Brings him a cake. Cause she like, doesn't seem to ever do anything up there anyway. She goes up there and sits and listens to people bang. It's, it's weird. She's very weird. And there's no evidence of cake eating in that attic. And uh, you know, Eric probably saw this whole thing going down and we've seen this type of, uh, narrative before old Jason Voorhees the most famous mama's boy of them all uh, has a very similar story if you buy into the kind of retconning they had to do between the first and second Friday the 13th movie but yeah that's what's going on lids now try not to lie and tell me that you saw that coming 
No, I absolutely saw that coming, like everybody else and yourself. I mean, <laughs> we all we all saw that coming. Except I hoped, I hoped against hope that Peter was the son. I really did. I really did. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'd be going into some like edge of the axe territory or mm-hmm. something like that, where there's like this the big secret everyone's trying to keep and the best place to keep a secret is out in the open, you know, just try and blend in. That's what I was hoping was happening here. But no, no, it was how 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 would you go about seventeen years of having a kid in the attic and having your sorority girls that you have year after year after year for decades not notice? I, it's it does not fly. It absolutely does not fly. There was like this um, sense where I guess when Slater was alive, she could keep him on a short leash, I suppose, and that could kind of work and now that she's dead it's kind of gone off the rails but um yeah it's really hard to to say what the logic is for that fuck all that because dr beck's a man with a plan and you know i love a man with a plan he is going to without saying anything just heavily sedate Katie to the point in which she's out of her fucking mind and then when she's now too delirious to even speak or really do anything he's going to put an end to all of this once and for all by at least capturing Eric and he's going to use Catherine as bait I think that they could have saved us a lot of time if they would have shortened all the scenes of the band to get here. Because I really wanted to get to this Agatha Christie style ending to this film. I also really wanted, not only did I want Peter to be Eric, I wanted more Eric. I want to see his face. So far, we have him in the shadows. And we know that most of these kills must have been him. Because his mom has been dead since the very beginning, since he saw her die. So it has been him all along. They've done a really good job of keeping the killer in the shadows. At the very beginning of the film, when Dr. Beck is giving her the C-section, and at the end of that scene, before we, what we guess maybe that the baby, or they wanted us to believe the baby didn't make it, he says she's the last one. So there's got to be, what, like 13 other, just to pick a horror movie number? Other women that underwent this infertility thing, these single women with babies now or something like, or did he abort them all? Like I really wanted more Dr. Beck, but what we get is the maniacal Dr. Beck using her as a bait for Eric. How is he going to capture him with a giant butterfly net? He's got a dart gun, but you know, the thing that boggles my mind and the thing that is probably the most frustrating aspect of this script There's a lot of praise to be had about dialogue, characterization. There's a lot of cool scenes. There's a lot of cool ideas. Why? Why in the... Why in the holy mother of fucking God do you waste our time by having Beck tell Slater that the baby died? Because what the... Because the next time they talk to each other, you know... She has had that kid for years and he knows it and she knows it. So what did he tell her the moment that she had her baby 
oh, she died. And then what, 20 minutes later when she was all done crying, he was like, nah, just kidding. Here you go. He just looks weird. <laughs> like what, what the only reason to do that sequence is because they think that we, the audience are fucking morons. And, and because it makes absolutely no fucking sense that the last time that we see these two people talk in 1961, it's just Dr. Beck telling her that her child is dead and then cut to 1981, he's just not and she's been taking care of him the whole time. So what the fuck happened? It's not only insulting to the viewer, it's one of the few times really that they... Uh, outwardly insult females just as a gender and make a sexist statement in that well I guess if you hand a woman a baby that's what she does she raises it whether she's raising it in the attic locked up like an animal or not is really up to her but she's just gonna raise it and you could trick her and being like your baby died here's this bundle of swaddled flesh and they're just gonna raise it because they don't know how to do anything other it's, it's a very weird uh, statement on motherhood and childbearing. Uh, before we like wrap up everything, I just wanted to put, we glossed over the death of Vicky and Liz. And the only reason why I really want to point out Vicky's death is they really go to town on old Vicky. And when she was the ringleader, the person who actually killed Slater and Eric would have seen this and he's going to get his revenge on Vicky and Liz who Liz I always view as Vicky's like little henchman like she's she's the second in command and she's the one that's like uh-huh yeah yeah you heard what Vicky said like it's, it's she's always the person that's helping Vicky execute that plan they do make it to the graveyard but they don't make it out um so I just wanted to gloss it over is because when you're like, oh, I wonder if they're going to like languid uh, on. Uh, oh, sorry, languish on Vicky's death. And they do. She gets it quite a few times before she actually kicks the bucket. And it's easily the most graphic death that we see. Um, now going back to the this weird sequence, um, this is where you can really tell that um, Mark Roseman was a guy who worked with Brian De Palma because there is like a fucking psychedelic weirdo scene um, that I like. I'm not making fun of it or anything like that, but it's fucking weird. Yeah, Katie's a psychedelic uh, hallucinations brought on by being drugged by Dr. Beck. Uh, they fit to a certain extent. I have keep wanting to watch Altered States because I had just uh, read that book. And it has some hallucination scenes that are very rudimentary and just don't really work. The same way that things in Videodrome don't work nowadays as well as they did originally. And this, actually, they pull it off to a certain extent. I do feel her dreamlike state and it's short-lived thank god and i think that's the best part about it is that it's very short-lived i can tell you what else is short-lived the good doctor's plan he um peach <laughs> what do you want to say man 
fucking Pete is gets it in the arm about the fucking Dr. Beck's stupid little blow dart and it goes so very wrong and then he gets a cane in the stomach for his troubles and now it's Catherine all alone as she must be. Now, there is something about the look of this killer. They've, there's been this jack-in-the-box and he must have really liked it, this Eric, because his mother took the time to get him a matching costume so he could dress up like his favorite court jester clown man. This is a clown slasher, kind of. And the only time that we really see a clear look at Eric is we think it's the costume hanging on the wall as it has been every time we've gone to that attic. But this time there is a man in that suit and he is going to advance on Catherine. The vibrant greens of his outfit and the hat in the shoes, I find very fun to look at. I really like his costume. I think it's just fun and it just looks great. Now, do you think that the Jack in the Box was what he styled himself after? Or do you think that he just wanted to dress as a clown so much that when his mom saw a Jack in the Box that looked like his outfit, she bought it for him? So which came first? The dirty pool or the bodies in it <laughs> or um, his look as a jester. Do you think he's like one of those kids that just wouldn't take off their Halloween costume one year and it grew along with him <laughs> or something? That is a damn good question. I don't have children. Surprise to anyone listening. But I have seen quite a few examples of again, a chicken and the egg type scenario when it comes to kids costuming. Sometimes they dress up as things and then you get them a toy that reminds you of that. Or sometimes they have a favorite toy and then you get them a costume so you can dress up like it. Oh, oh he really likes Paw Patrol. Well, he can be this weird Dalmatian cop puppy now. He loves that little guy. And then maybe in 20 more years, we'll get a Paw Patrol slasher movie, like all the other weird intellectual property slasher movies that we get these days. But I would guess it was costume first and the Jack in the Box, because the Jack in the Box looks so crudely painted. I wonder if ah, she painted yeah. it to look like it more like his jester costume because we don't have an explanation of what his deformations are is it that he has weird pointy appendages like like sideshow bob hair mm -hmm. that it's not actually a jester hat that's his actual skin skin or something you know <laughs> which it would be <laughs> fantastical but like yeah, or was the year before, was he into Raggedy Andy and she bought him a Raggedy Andy doll after and that ruined the illusion or something like I don't know. It's, it's just weird to me that he dresses like this with no real explanation other than it looks creepy. You know, it is sort of fan service from a slasher point of view where you like a masked slasher, don't you? You got to have weird, creepy clowns somehow, don't you? You got to have a head in the toilet somehow. So we got to amp up the crudeness by putting a head in a toilet. We have to amp up the 
fear factor by hiding whatever deformation under some sort of creepy look. Why not a jester? Is I don't know. It's just a very weird choice to me. I like the look of it. It just makes no sense whatsoever at all to me. And I really do think that she would have, yeah, painted or bought that jack-in-the-box after the fact because I can't see him at the from what we gather of Eric he's very nonverbal animalistic childlike I don't know if he would be able to express that sort of costume that like his desire for that sort of costume I don't think he'd be able to make it unless she's bringing high-priced satins and silks upstairs for him to sew on what machine like it just it makes no sense to me at all much like the c-section at the beginning makes no sense and the fact that there are other women that have been given this procedure by dr back like it just all of it makes no sense whatsoever but it's fine because Catherine has a gun actually if you remember that rick's gun contains quite a few blanks and for one reason she is going to fire nothing but blanks and then throw the gun now gang if you've ever held uh, a handgun like that they're pretty heavy so if you were to throw a gun like that with any sort of enthusiasm you might be able to injure somebody but i guess she throws it on the floor because she just does the most lame limp wrist toss i've ever seen in my entire life but she does have a um uh what is it a, it's a pen right it's it's a it's a it's a pen or like a like a hat pin or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a hat pin. Um, Eric is immune to blanks, but not immune to being stabbed by a pin, and he falls down the attic, and he dies. And Cad, uh, Catherine is relieved, and of course, because it's a slasher movie, and we even saw this in Stage Fright last time impossible injuries and we just end on an opening of their eyes and since there's no sequels it's all meaningless and it doesn't matter uh it's a fairly generic ending but i suspect lydia that it was the happy medium of at least the killer isn't dead and could in theory if catherine now has her guard down win uh, are you aware of the alternate ending of this film? I have only read about the alternate ending, but I am aware of the ending that was on the cutting room floor entirely and may or may not exist. In an interview with the director, he says it may exist on a cassette tape somewhere, but he's not seen it since it was cut. That is also the case. I have the uh, MVD fancy Blu-ray edition of this film. Um, it has some photos from this scene that still exist uh, and the director commentary over it explaining what the sequence was supposed to be. But as of the time that the Blu-ray was printed and as of the time that this podcast is recorded, it is considered lost and the uh director mark rosman he had said that he was sick sick and tired liz of 
all these movies got these final girls in them. He didn't call them a final girl, but had a lone surviving woman. He wanted the killer to win. And so there was a sequence in which the police were at this sorority house and bodies were being pulled out of the pool. And we see the gesture costume laying floating face down in the pool and the police go to pull up the body and oh wouldn't you know it the killer has escaped and killed Catherine dressed her in the gesture costume and tossed her in the pool with the others and Eric is out there to kill again but that unfortunately was deemed too depressing by the distributors and so this ending was created instead was there any word on that about the other scene where we have Eric open his eyes, then we cut to Catherine in the hospital, regaling staff with the tale of her heroic survival, and one of the orderlies, who is Eric, comes in with a wink and shuts the door. Was there any talk of that other alternate ending? At least not what I saw. This is the first I'm actually hearing about it. That was in an interview that I'd heard, uh, or read rather, with the director, who that was another proposal, mm. but they didn't like that either, which left it open at least. It would have worked for him and it would have worked for the audience to a certain extent because there's no real proof. We don't know what Eric looks like. So it would have been kind of in the director's head canon, as many people like to say, as a term I cannot stand, but it would have been in his heart, Eric would have got his comeuppance. And still survived. But that doesn't exist either. That's really, really fascinating. And instead, what we end up with is a sadly generic slasher ending that we've seen a million times. And if this had turned into one of those situations where either the pool sequence or the hospital sequence, how much more famous do you think that this horror movie would be? The one where the killer wins? Come on. Those are always really cool. Um, but it was not to be. And instead we get, you know, uh, this is just a great example of like two episodes in a row with two endings that are fucking identical. Yeah. Yeah. Just with that eye opening thing. <laughs> I really enjoy that there is an example of a director out there that didn't want to cater to the typical ending. He didn't want to cater to, well, we can't kill off a strong female who's been through so much. He had the same sort of heart in horror that I do, where, you know what? This guy is a monstrous force of nature that's lived undetected for 20 years in an attic. Of course he's going to come out on top. He can't be like only a prick will kill him. He's going to he's going to bounce back with supernatural preternatural force of some sort and kill this one girl by doing what, you know, that, that sort of like picturesque death, the fitting poetic death of throwing her in the pool, throw all of them in the pool. That would have been perfect. It would have been a wonderful ending downbeat, whatever it would have worked in so many other countries like any other country would have accepted that ending as a good ending to that film and a fitting ending but i believe that because it was filmed and produced in the united states they had a very different sentiment about the way they wanted films to end 
Well, it's just the way that it goes. No matter what your creative vision is, especially in those days, you had a choice. Your choice was make your movie and raise the money and get it distributed. Um, You got to, you know, compromise. You got to make some decisions because, you know, unless you're funding this completely yourself and it's not easy to do, particularly in those days. This is a micro budgeted slasher movie and it still almost costs half a million dollars to make. Nowadays, you could probably make this for a few thousand dollars, maybe less than $25,000 and, and have a very similar production. Uh, in theory, I'm, I'm not a filmmaker, so I don't really know, but in those days, it's not going to happen. And if the distributor says, uh, this is not the movie that we want, you got to change it in the same way that in those slasher movies, the proto slashers, they're like, well, that were made in between 1978 and stuff like that just before Halloween really hit. And these movies were already made like Prey, for example. And they're like, we need more bodies. We need a higher body count because like, and they're just like, well, this is the movie that we made. Fuck it. I don't care what movie you made. We want more bodies. And then they're like, uh, this is too violent. It's all going to get cut anyway. It's too expensive. Uh, just put some naked women in it and like more, more breasts. And we like that. And, and just keep the body count to a minimum. Oh, okay. Uh, that's too much nudity now. So not enough, less violence, less nudity. But, you know, make it kind of original, make it kind of fun. In fact, let's not do slashes anymore because they're not selling as well. And that's how these cycles like just change and change and change. Right. It was like in the late 90s after Scream, every distributor, every people, everyone with money was like, make it more like Scream. And so everything got really jokey and funny and self-referential until that went out of fashion. And then slashers went to bed for a little while. And speaking about going to bed for a little while, what do we got next for him? Coming up next, we have Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive, which I am surprised we've never done. But I also said that about House and Sorority Row. And I'm also going to say it about an upcoming film where I'm just surprised we've never done it before. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's on Shutter as well, which is cool because so was this film. If you're looking for these films, a lot of the time we're finding them on streaming services. Like we're not sponsored by Shutter or sponsored by anything. We just take it as it comes. If it's not in Wes's giant, um, not even it's it's so much more eclectic than a Walmart bargain bin. Uh, <laughs> he's got a, a fantastic collection. If it's not on his walls and if it's not on our walls, because we have a different yet equally eclectic collection of films we're finding them on these uh streaming sites so this one and the next are both on shutter and i'm pretty stoked but yeah i'm not i don't believe i've watched toby hooper's eaten alive well if you like films like uh gator bait if you like films like uh, Savage Weekend, if you like uh sort of like steamy bayou killer type movies and of course it's toby hooper so we're gonna just crank that weird right up there uh and i think you'll be prison uh i think you'll be pleasantly surprised because uh this is a film that uh i've longed to talk about and like you many times assumed that we had already done it but we haven't we'll rectify it this time uh and you'll get to see a very young robert england inform us that his name is Buck and he is indeed here to fuck. 
I swear. Okay, I have seen this then. I have at least seen that scene because I, I do love a, lo a young Robert Eglund. Uh, seeing him in Burial Ground was fantastic. And he's a, a very different person. He's not Buck there. And he's not there to fuck whatsoever. But yeah, that's, that's an interesting take. I th think I've seen a clip of that. I'm surprised again we haven't done this for the show. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And then after that, we have a special review of Jekyll coming up. And then we'll get back into some moldy oldies before I can pick and choose some newer films to go along with some of these horror greats that we've been talking about lately. <laughs> and on that note, I'm Wes Snipe. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air. If you like this show, you can find more episodes and other content on splatterpictures.net, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. You can also find us on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. The show is edited by Lydia Peaver and hosted by Lydia Peaver and me, Wes Knight. We'll see you next time.